Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of Kick McCure here on Full Press Radio, episode number 110. Thanks for kicking with me, Ricky Keeler, here on a Thursday. Happy back with you once again. And the old saying goes, you miss a little, you miss a lot. And we have a lot to get into on this week's show. Talk about, of course, Aaron Rodgers missing this Sunday's game against the Chiefs due to um, testing positive for COVID and all the controversy surrounding that. Uh, We'll touch on Odell Beckham Jr. Still not going to Browns practice the last two days. Who's at fault and why it just hasn't worked with OBJ in Cleveland? We'll get into, of course, the sad story with Henry Ruggs, Derek Henry with his foot injury, and we'll preview uh, Jets-Colts later tonight. As we usually do on the Thursday show, we look at the Thursday game. It's an interesting game. Not a a great game, but an interesting one. Uh, the Braves are your World Series champions. We'll do some baseball, wrap up the World Series. Uh, Wayne Cavati, my good friend from Talking Chop, resident Braves fan, does some great work with D, uh, Division II Sports. Uh, he's going to join me on this show. We'll recap the World Series, look ahead at the offseason, and some issues baseball has to figure out. We'll get into the college football playoff. The initial rankings are out, and I think the committee gave a message without exactly giving a message. We'll dive into that, and we'll briefly talk about the big trade in the NHL today. Uh, Jack Eichel going to Las Vegas and what that means. Want to remind you can follow me on Twitter at Rickinator555. It's at R-I-C-K letter I, Nader like a Terminator 35. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at FP underscore coverage and at Full Press Radio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Wherever it's your podcast, just search Kicking with Keyword. Chances are you will find us there. Please leave a rating. Tell me what you like. If you don't like, you can email me, rickjkeeler at gmail.com. And remember, download the Full Press Coverage app on your iOS or Android device. It is free. All of our articles, podcasts, live shows, you miss any portion of the show, and, or you just want to go back and listen to me again because you just can't get enough of my voice, I guess. Uh, feel you can do that on the app, and we would and thank you for if you have already downloaded the app already. So let's get right to it. We're going to start with Aaron Rodgers, and, and I think that's the big story to get into uh, this week. Uh, the big news on Wednesday: uh, Aaron Rodgers testing positive for COVID nineteen. Uh, he's out. 
for this Sunday's game against Kansas City Chiefs, which I think is a big buzzkill to everybody in the NFL because we've wanted to see Aaron Rodgers against Patrick Mahomes and although the Chiefs are not what they once were, or not what they were the last two years, at least right now. It is a matchup you always want to see, and it's not going to happen. But that's not the bigger issue here. The issue comes with what seems to be violation of, of the COVID protocols by Aaron Rodgers. Uh, back in August, he told reporters that he was inoculated, which I, which you would think at the time means, okay, Aaron Rodgers is vaccinated. Uh, we're going to not talk about it really anymore. Well, he had supposedly tried to get a different treatment that was tried to get cleared by the NFL. The NFL said no. So Rodgers had to be treated like an unvaccinated player. But he's not wearing masks in interview rooms. His interviews are supposed to be through Zoom. That hasn't happened. You see him without a mask on the sideline. You see him without a mask at a Halloween party. You see him essentially disregard every rule in the book. And to be fair, we saw the good debate that Jay Williams and Stephen A. Smith had on first take on Thursday. There needs to be a similar amount of outrage at Aaron Rodgers as there is at Kyrie Irving. And that's the only fair way to go about it. Because at least Kyrie Irving stood up and said, you know what, I don't, I'm not going to get the, I'm not going to get the vaccine. I'm not anti-vaccine, anti-mandate. And whether you agree with Kyrie Irving's stance or not, you understood he gave his reasonings and you have to go with it. Kirk Cousins and Carson Wentz aren't vaccinated. They came out, said why they're not vaccinated. Carson Wentz has followed every rule in the book. Kirk Cousins is the same way. But there's something wrong with this situation in Green Bay. And it's strictly this. Aaron Rodgers thinks, and I think rightfully thinks, he's bigger than everybody else. And I think... It's just my opinion. I think he said these things to essentially said he was immunized, immunized, not inoculated, immunized, to get the reporters off his back. He didn't want to answer questions. He doesn't want to get his, doesn't want to explain to, to explain himself why he's not vaccinated. And he doesn't want to deal with it anymore. Because he has no time for the media. And why would the Packers, and this is on the Packers too. The Packers need, should have enforced these protocols. If, you're, if your star quarterback is not vaccinated and you need to do everything you can to keep your star quarterback on the field, you need to enforce the policies. So this is on the Packers and this is on the NFL. We've ripped the NFL for... Talks of, all oh, heavy sanctions are going to come down if the teams violate these rules. Okay, so besides fines and late round picks, where have the heavy discipline, the heavy discipline actually come from? Whether it was the Titans or the Saints or the Raiders or the Broncos or whoever it's been over the last few years, the last year or so. Where's that big significant penalty? Where's the NFL when they, they're the ones that want to worry about if you took, 
wear different socks or your shoes aren't tied right or your jersey doesn't match the way they want it. Where's the where's the NFL, which has monitors on these situations, to be like, yeah, he's not following the rules. So the NFL has a little egg on their face because now they would have to come out and impose discipline when they didn't catch it. So you can blame Aaron Rodgers all you want, and I will, because to me, if you if you said and I said it, that Kyrie Irving's selfish, Aaron Rodgers is selfish. Because you cost your team this week, you now as an unvaccinated player have to miss 10 days, but you can still participate in virtual meetings, sure. But he's out from at least practicing with the team until Saturday, November 13th. There's another game they have that following day. You potentially cost your team two games. And when you look at the NFC and how close it is, one or two games can determine home field advantage in the postseason. Can determine if you get a bye in the postseason. You can't put your team in that situation. You just can't. And you have every right. Again, we're not talking vaccine. If you, if you don't want to get the vaccine, you have a reason. That That's great. You want to get the vaccine, you have reason. That's great too. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about here is when you're in a team environment. You sometimes got to put the team over yourself. And you're Aaron Rodgers. You know how important you are to the Green Bay Packers. You've seen it. When Aaron Rodgers goes down, it's a completely different football team. Just watch the line when you looked at the spread before it came off the books. The the spread jumped so high, like at least a touchdown when, when Aaron Rodgers was ruled out for the game. And who knows how good Jordan Love's going to be? I don't know. You don't know. Only the players in practice maybe know. We'll find out in Arrowhead in a, in a game where the Chiefs aren't you know, the best defense, but it's still a tough place to play for your NFL debut. But it makes you wonder, okay, are the Packers trying to appease Aaron Rodgers because they want him to stay? They don't want him to move on next year. We all talked about it at nauseum every single week during the offseason. Was Aaron Rodgers going to go? Maybe this is the Packers making up and catering to him to get him to stay. I have no idea. Because I think about as a team, why wouldn't you enforce this, these rules, especially with your star player? And it's tough to really come up with that. And there was a good article I was reading in... um pro football talk today that the nfl has a it's titled nfl is a covid protocol enforcement problem and i would agree with that and was written mike florio wrote the article and basically what they were saying is the teams are expected to enforce the protocol not the league so if the league is going to put these protocols in place shouldn't they have some form of being able to enforce the penalties that they collectively bargain with the owners and the player association why is the onus solely on the team, not the league? Or the majority on the league? As Florio put it, they should be league matters. But he also brought up this point that he brought up on Wednesday. NFL General Counsel Jeff Pash and Packers CEO Mark Murphy are known to be good friends. Well, Pash looked the other way on the Packers the same way he was looking the other way in Washington's infractions when his other friend Bruce Allen worked there. Last year, the NFL inconsistently and haphazardly punished teams for COVID violations. This year, the league is on notice. What it does next will show whether the league is capable of being fair to all teams and whether the COVID protocols are something more substantive 
substantive meh, than window dressing. It's hard to disagree. If, if you don't see a punishment on the Packers, then you have every right to think these COVID protocols are window dressing. Every right. Because I'm not saying kick Aaron Rodgers out of the league. I'm not saying take three first rounders from the Packers. You know what I kind of want in, a, in this kind of scenario? If it's proven Aaron Rodgers, after this investigation, the NFL is going to do, violated these protocols and, via, and blatantly violated the protocols, he needs a one game suspension. He needs a suspension because you gotta you gotta prove a point for the league. You want to take a pick away from the Packers? I don't know if you take a first round pick. Maybe you take like a second or a third or something. But it can't just be a fine. It, it really can't just be a fine. These teams have money grown out of nowhere. What does a fine necessarily do? The Packers should be embarrassed, the league should be embarrassed, and Aaron Rodgers should be embarrassed because he looks like a liar. And as people have pointed out all week, he has no right, he doesn't have to be forthcoming to the media, but it makes you look bad. It, it does make you look bad, and he's not a bad guy, I don't believe that. But there's something about being honest, and you got Aaron Jones saying, oh, it's hip. it's not HIPAA. And you got people like, I saw a tweet from Ben Watson saying, well, why is the media still ask these questions? You know why the media still ask these questions? Because it determines availability of who, what you can play in the game. And that's important. The media ask, always asks the vaccine, vaccination question because it determines your availability to play. It's not about your what you believe or what about it. And, you could determine that based off reasonings, non-reasoning for getting the vaccine, etc. It's about your availability to play. Plain and simple. And by now having to miss 10 days, Aaron Rodgers puts his team in jeopardy, potentially, and probably it won't be, but you never know if symptoms arise, two games. It's not a good position to be in. And I think the league is at fault. I think the Packers are at fault. I think Aaron Rodgers is at fault. It's really three different things. And we need to see what the NFL decides to do. Because if the NFL decides to go light on the Packers, they're clearly seeing the NFL has a disciplinary problem too. They just do. The NFL has been under a lot of scrutiny over the last few weeks. It's not changing anytime soon. But, like I say with all the scrutiny, we love watching football. It doesn't change. In lighter news, uh, the Browns and Odell Beckham Jr. weren't able to find a trade partner. De trade deadline was Tuesday. Big deal, of course, Von Miller going to the Rams. Besides that, there wasn't a huge deal that happened. Um, I could see why Denver moved on, though, very quickly. I'm not if you're a Broncos fan. I get why you're upset, even though Von Miller doesn't have much time left in Denver. You're a half game out of the playoffs. Why would you trade your best defensive player? But the Rams get a second and third round pick. Well, Denver gets a second and third round pick from the Rams. And the Rams are going for it. They don't believe in draft picks because they, they want to go for the title. I don't blame them for that either. But that was the big deal. But the Odell Beckham situation is really interesting. Because you have a situation in which Odell Beckham Jr.'s dad makes a video of the day of a deadline of situations where Baker Mayfield could have got Odell Beckham Jr. the ball. 
Now, I agree that it's not the athlete's fault based on what the parents tweet. I know people argue with Baker Mayfield's girlfriend tweets or uh, uh, Baker Mayfield or like Tom, like Tom Brady, like Giselle Bunchen when she tweets about Tom, when Tom Brady does something or or some of with Patrick Mahomes' family. That's not it's not the same thing. You're vehemently saying, "Hey, my my son needs to get the ball more," and I'm going to show you all the video. And I thought Baker handled it right. He's like, "I talked to Odell's I've talked to Odell, Odell's dad face to face before." I don't believe Baker Mayfield is vehemently trying to knock Odell Beckham Jr. the ball. But it, it's crazy. I know Beckham Odell Beckham Jr.'s contract is a little bit tough to trade. But there had to have been a way for the Browns, if they know this isn't working, to get a sixth-round pick or a fifth-round pick or, or something from a team that needs a wide receiver, whether it's the Saints, whether with the Henry Ruggs situation, whether it's the Raiders, or something, to get a deal done to just avoid this. And they couldn't get it done. And who knows? They told him the last few days to not come to practice. It doesn't sound like he's going to play with the Browns anymore. But I'm tired of this being the blame on Baker Mayfield. And I've talked about this for the last couple weeks. Like I watch all these shows and they just constantly hate on Baker Mayfield. Look at the situation the Browns are in. Their defense stinks. Their two tackles have been hurt for the bulk of the last month or so. Nick Chubb was hurt up until recently. Jarvis Landry just came back about a week or two ago, and he dropped a couple big passes on Sunday. Peoples Jones out, and let's be honest with Odell Beckham. He's had a torn ACL. He's had a shoulder injury. He's not the same player. I heard Bart Scott say that today on Get Up that it's kind of like a Randy Moss situation. It's not even close to a Randy Moss situation. I don't. I don't think. At least people knew when Moss got to New England, he had something left. I don't know what Odell Beckham Jr. has left. And I'm not saying he's a bum. I'm not saying he can't play. I'm not saying that he's a guy that can't contribute to a team. I believe he absolutely can contribute to a team. He's He just, but believe it or not, he turns 28, 29 tomorrow. So happy birthday, Odell Beckham Jr. Maybe your birthday present will be going to another team that maybe will use you a little bit more. But you look at Cleveland. They're not a pass-happy offense. They're not designed that way. So it was not going to be a fit once Stefanski became the head coach and you're looking at it more of a Mike Zimmer-style offense that relies on the running game and not turning the football over. Baker Mayfield's not a guy that's going to air the ball out 50 times. That doesn't make him a bad quarterback. It's just the way the system is set up. But when you look at Odell Beckham's career, since that catch with the Giants, what exactly has he done in this league? Since 2016. Back in 2016, he had over 100 catches for over 1,300 yards, 10 touchdowns. He has had a to- he has played in a total of 42 games in the last five years. 42 games in the last five years. He does have a total of 16 touchdowns. None this season. Three last year in seven games before getting injured. Four in 2019 when he first got to... Um, when he left, when he got traded from the Giants, which in 2018 he did have over a thousand yards, six touchdowns. So he bounced back from the injury in 2017, had a good year in 2018 with the Giants. So let's go with since 2018. I used the 16 moment because more like once Odell Beckham made the catch, he became a national brand. 
he's not that I don't think he's that guy anymore. He's not a number one on a contending Super Bowl team. Can he be a good number two, number three on a contending team? Yes. Absolutely. Do I think he's a player that swings the balance of power in the AFC or the NFC? No. He's got to prove it. Considering you've been banged up with injury each, each of the last two years, it's tough to trust that he can stay on the field. I don't doubt the talent that he has. It's staying on the field. And I don't think that his family handled that situation well. Because I don't think Baker may... I think maybe it was the narrative that Baker does better without him. But I know Baker would probably want to throw the ball to him. So we look at the one play Sunday against the Steelers where he's going up with one hand to catch a ball. When it's not a badly thrown ball, you can make that play. So when you look at this Cleveland, it's kind of like in a different sense with the Packers. It's kind of a sense of the Browns where you can blame everybody for just not working. Or you can just admit, you know what, sometimes these things don't work. What you'd kind of like to see is the Browns saying, you know what, let's cut our losses, release them. We'll see if he gets either picked up on waivers of the contract or goes to free agency and he can pick his team. Whether it's the Saints, which I think desperately need a wide receiver. Whether it's the Raiders, whether it's New England. I don't think New England's a fit because they're more of a run-based offense. Uh, Kansas City could be a fit. There, There's a bunch of different teams you could see him fitting with. They'd have to be more... Odell Beckham Jr.'s fit is where they pass heavy offense. Because he's going to get more chances at the football. If he's in a run-heavy offense, your chances are limited, not even based on your talent level, just based on, you look, the team's more run-oriented. Cleveland relies more Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt than they do their wide receivers. That's what helps them win. So you can't go out of your way to try to win to make a guy happy at wide receiver. Doesn't work. So I still leave in Baker Mayfield. Again, I, I don't think Odell Beckham Jr. is a bum. I just don't think he's the same player that he once was. Uh, very quickly, we'll look at the NFL. and we'll, I think we'll carry it over into the, the second segment as well. well. We'll touch on my takeaways from this past week. In the next segment, we'll preview the Jackie in there. Sad news out of Vegas this week. Um, Henry Ruggs III um, got in a car accident, was driving 156 miles an hour, driving with a blood alcohol content of twice the legal limit, um, killing was it, um, a 23-year-old woman. Um, thoughts and prayers, of course, are with that family. Uh, it's heartbreaking, and you wish that um, he had made a better decision um, not to drink and drive. And you, you realize, you look at the situation, and you wonder... These NFL athletes have so much at their disposal, and they still make a decision like that. Um, it's something you hope he learns from, and but it, you can't help but uh, grieve for the, the family that, that uh, lost a loved one. It, it's it's very hard to nearly look at that, and if you get a chance, go look at the comments made on Wednesday by Derek Carr and you look at how the Raiders have handled all these situations this year with Gruden and everything everything else I don't know you can there you can debate if you can find a better quarterback than Derek Carr there is not you it's tough to find a better leader than Derek Carr and he has handled these situations extremely extremely well 
and you tip your cap to him because he just knows how to say the right things and knows how to still be supportive while still realizing the how important his words are. Uh, so our thoughts and prayers are with the family of Tina O. Tintor. Um, she died with her dog in that um, in that crash, and I know Rug, uh, Rug's supposed to be in court uh, next week. Uh, finally, just really light news in the NFL: the big foot injury to Derrick Henry. Um, the Titans went out; they signed Adrian Peterson. I, I don't think it changes Tennessee's. It, I mean, losing Henry for the rest of the regular season is a big, big injury. Tennessee's going to win the South, largely because they beat the Colts. They were going to win the South. But in terms of now your Super Bowl chances, the AFC is wide open, folks. It, it really is. You, I, you can make a case for any of these teams. You can make a case why either team won't win, whether it's Tennessee, Cincinnati loses to the Jets. The Chiefs, people still believe in, but not as well as they, not as strong as they used to. The Bills struggle with Miami a little bit. Baltimore, been up and down. You know, they're 5-2. and two. Chargers lose to New England. There's, again, you're making cases for these teams. I don't know if there's a clear-cut favorite in the AFC. So as long as Tennessee can get in, which they should, they're going to win the division. And Derrick Henry is healthy for the postseason. That's all that matters. Will he be healthy for the postseason? We'll see. But for right now, if you're Tennessee, just get in the playoffs. But they'll have Adrian Peterson. They'll have Jeremy McNichols. Do they rely more on A.J. Brown in the passing game? We'll see. But Mike Rabel's a good coach. I think he's going to figure it out. So we'll take our first break. We'll come back. We'll look back at the rest of what happened in the NFL last week. We'll preview tonight's Jets-Colts game. And we will wrap up the World Series as well. You're listening to Kicking with Keeler here on Full Press Radio. We'll be right back after this. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Looking back at the rest of Week 8 in the NFL here on Kicking with Keel before we preview the first game of Week 9. And we have to start with the game in, in MetLife Stadium. Where, uh, we're going to get into him later, but Mike White, what a debut he had for the Jets. 37-45, 405 yards, three touchdowns, two picks. He wasn't flashy, but he made the smart decisions. He was 11-for-11 11 11 to begin the game. And it just seemed like the Bengals, I thought their trip-up game, their trap game, was going to be two weeks ago against the Lions. Turned out it was this one. They were flat. They struggled in goal-to-go situations. And they paid the price for it. And you tip your cap to the Jets. They found a way to win. But your Cincinnati, remember we talked about them last week on Thursday. Or even, was it Thursday or Saturday? It's one of those shows. that They were, the, were going to be the number one seed in the AFC if the season had ended at that point. You can't lose games like that. The Jets are a bad team. You can't lose in that kind of situation, but they did. And, I, and still Cincinnati's a good team, but now we got to kind of take a step back just at how great they are because you can't slip up in those situations. The Pittsburgh-Cleveland game was weird. I mentioned all the drops by Jarvis Landry and all of the 
Uh, Odell Beckham controversy with Cleveland. The weird thing with Pittsburgh was trying to fake field goal in the second quarter, putting your kicker at risk to getting hurt, and then not having a kicker the rest of the game. Which I would say to that argument, I was talking with a Steeler friend at my, my job, and I was like, you got a fourth and goal in a 10-9 game, and you can't kick a field goal. Your punter can't kick from a 21-yard field goal, then you shouldn't be on the team. The fact that you'd have to go for it even in that situation, I get if you have to go for it if the kick is longer than 40 yards. But if the kick is that short, then why are you even bothering to have a punt, to have basically the punter? Punters should be able to kick a field goal in that spot. I don't think it's that complicated, but you never know. But Pittsburgh finds a way to win on the road. They use their ground game well with Najee Harris. 26 carries, 91 yards, and a touchdown. And the Steelers are over 500. And I think they're a team starting to figure out what their identity is. You have to give props to two teams that found a way to win with backup quarterbacks. Uh, one being Cooper Rush for the Cowboys. I was impressed. Uh, my other friend at my work, uh, who's a huge Cowboys fan, big Cooper Rush fan, so he was happy. Uh, 325 yards, two touchdowns, and a pick. Amari Cooper had a huge day, 8 for 122 in a score. C.D. Lamb, 6 for 112. And even on a day where the offense just wasn't great in terms of running the ball, Elliott didn't have a big game that Tyron Smith's been hurt. Without Dak Prescott, to beat a decent Minnesota team. I don't think it's a great Minnesota team because they just keep finding ways to lose. Their four losses are about, like, 19 points. They're still finding ways. Dallas is still finding ways to get wins. And their defense is making plays. Micah Parsons has been huge. And if you were impressed by Green Bay's win over Arizona when they didn't have three wide receivers, you have to be equally as impressed with Dallas for going on the road and winning without their starting quarterback. In the past, especially last year, Dallas would be awful without Dak Prescott. And it sounds like Dak's going to play this weekend uh, against the Broncos, which is huge. But as long as Cooper Rush is bound, is, he's good at distributing the ball. He's able to... Continue to make plays, not make mistakes. Dallas is going to be fine. And they're going to win the NFC East anyway. Uh, I think people would have forgave the Cowboys if they had lost that game. But to get that win was impressive. And then how about New Orleans? Jameis Winston goes down, tears his ACL. It's up to Trevor Simeon. And, and he did okay. 16 of 29 for 159 and a touchdown. He didn't make mistakes. Tom Brady with two key interceptions, although he did throw four touchdowns. But the Saints find a way to win in a game I thought they would win. Home game on Halloween. The Saints defense in the regular season has figured out Tom Brady. And without Antonio Brown, with Rob Gronkowski playing, then leaving the game, they're, they're down two options in terms of pass catchers. Though Brady threw a 50-yard touchdown in this game to Cyril Grayson, whoever that is. But the Saints get the big pick six at the end of the game. They drive down, kick a field goal before that pick six. and But Sean Payton looks like he's going to go to Taysom Hill. And my argument is, to not go Taysom Hill. So I don't believe Taysom Hill can be a true quarterback. I think he's good at whatever role he, Sean Payton puts him in. But you have a guy in Trevor Simeon who's played in this league, who has, who's had an okay career in this league, who you know can throw the football, who you know can be a good game manager. And now you're going to put Taysom Hill as kind of your quarterback, running back, hybrid kind of thing. I don't think that's going to work. Like, the reason you got Jameis Winston is kind of avoid the situation. You have a guy in Trevor Simeon that you can play that has started games in this league. Not a lot of teams can have backups that say that. But the Saints are going to be go. The only way the Saints are going to go places this year is their defense and Alvin Kamara and now Mark Ingram with Kamara in the mix to kind of take some of the, the carries away from him. 
give him a little bit of a break. But that was a big win for New Orleans. Um, other games of note, we talked about Tennessee. Uh, the Titans, 34-31 in overtime. Carson Wentz with a terrible pick sticks in that fourth quarter to Elijah Molden caught at the two-yard line. You can't take that. You can't even risk that throw if you're Wentz. And then Carson Wentz makes a mistake in overtime, leads to a Titans game-winning field goal. Indy's essentially now down four games in the AFC South. The Colts are three back. They just got swept. It's four, basically, in the head-to-head. Carson Wentz has got to stop doing too much. He's got the rapport with Pittman. He's, Jonathan Taylor's playing well. But Indianapolis shot themselves in the foot in this game. They should have won it. They were up 14 nothing early, got the momentum, and they allowed Tennessee to come back. And for a game that Indianapolis desperately needed to stay in the division, that was a disappointing loss. I'll give some love to the Patriots, though. Good win in L.A., Justin Herbert with two picks, including the pick six by Adrian Phillips, former Charger. And you're seeing Bill Belichick kind of use different things to confuse Justin Herbert. He's probably the only coach who has so far. What the Patriots did in this game is they used Damian Harris in the ground game, 80 yards and a touchdown. And this wasn't even Mac Jones's. He, he didn't throw a touchdown. He had a C kind of game. But his C game was just enough. Got him in a field goal range. Nick Folk has been money kicking field goals. And... To get a win like that with your defense, even though the defense allowed 14 points in the first 17 minutes of the game, they were going to hang tough after that. And one of the things that people were looking for from the Patriots is can you beat a good team on the road? You're th- the three wins before that were two against the Jets and one against the Texans. You do get Tyrod Taylor back this week. But to beat a good team, a team people believe are a contender in the Chargers, I mean, that's impressive. And if you're New England and you look at that schedule, Three of the next the next three weeks, they get Carolina, Cleveland, and Atlanta. And then Tennessee, if you want to include the fourth game. If the Patriots can go three and one in those next four games, they're in the playoff conversation. I don't think they can afford to lose two of those because then it gets tricky because they got Buffalo twice in the last like five weeks of the season. You know that right now the Patriots can't beat the Bills. But definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, for the New England, for the Patriots to win without a great offensive day, but a decent one to get enough to do just enough to get the win. The Monday night game was interesting. Again, we're still not sold on the Chiefs because the Chiefs continue to make dumb decisions. They have plays that goes all, go off receivers' helmets. Now they're being interceptions instead of crazy catches. And the Giants with terrible penalties. They're undisciplined. Uh, Joe Judge is complaining about headsets not working, which I don't understand. Feels like an excuse to me from him. And I mean, you give the Giants some benefit of the doubt. Barkley's been hurt. Now he's on the COVID list. And Galladay's been hurt. And Shepard's now hurt. And all these guys have been injured. But you get, you can't beat yourself at penalties. And it seems like even the Chiefs tried everything they can to lose this game. And you look, they had 12 penalties for 103 yards. They're one of the more penalized teams in the league. You can't be making self-inflicted mistakes because now you can't get away with it. In the past, the Chiefs would get away with decisions like that. They can't anymore. So while I still think Kansas City's alive, they're 4-4, four and four, and this is a big game coming up this week. If they don't beat the Packers, they got Vegas next week and then Dallas. You can't beat Jordan Love at home. The Chiefs are in trouble. They still got to play the Chargers. Still got to play the Raiders twice. They still have to play Pittsburgh. They still have to play Cincinnati. The schedule isn't easier for the Chiefs down the stretch. 
You can't look at them as last year's Chiefs or two years ago's Chiefs. We've learned that lesson because if you did, they would have blew the doors off the Giants. So that's the state of where Kansas City is at. And then very quickly, San Francisco, Jimmy Garoppolo runs for two touchdowns. I still am confused why Justin Fields can't seem to have a good chemistry with Allen Robinson. But we'll see if that gets worked out over the remaining portion of the season. So let's look quickly at the Thursday night game, which is uh, obviously tonight in Lucas Oil Stadium. Jets at the Colts. Um, it's on Fox NFL Network. Jets 2-5. and five. Indianapolis desperately needs this game at 3-5. and five. Um, Indy does have Jets. If Indy can beat, win this game and, and then they play Jacksonville next week, the Colts will be 5-5 five and five with seven weeks to go. So at least it'll keep them in the conversation of the postseason picture. But you want to see with Indy being 10-point favorites, them dominate this game with Jonathan Taylor and Carson Wentz making smart decisions with the football. And if you're the Jets, what you want to look for without Corey Davis, Michael Carter's been getting more increased usage in the offense. Uh, I think you want to see Elijah Moore do a little bit, a little bit of extra work, get him involved. This Jet team, it's not as bad as they were against New England. It's not as good as they were last week. But Mike White knows the offense. He's making good decisions. He's not falling flat in his face. You don't need Joe Flacco in this game, which you could rip the Jets for trying not, we're not getting a veteran backup and then trying to trade for a veteran backup when you not use the veteran backup. But Mike White's in position. I'm still going to go with the Colts to win this game. I can't, in my right mind, pick the Jets to win on the road. Could I see the Jets covering the spread? Sure. Maybe a backdoor cover. Uh, but to me, the Colts are just, Carson Wentz and Michael Pittman have something going. The Jets are bad against the tight end. Maybe the Colts get the tight end involved with Mo Cox and Jack Doyle this week. T.Y. Hilton's out. I don't think that'll be that big of a deal, though Indy's already banged up at wide receiver to begin with. Uh, but I'll take the Colts. I think they win it pretty convincingly. Although I wouldn't be shocked if the Jets did cover the number. I'll say Indianapolis 27, the Jets 16. So 27-16, Colts get the win. So we'll look at the World Series, and then we'll uh, play our interview with Wayne coming up. And Braves wrap it up, game six, 7-0 win. And uh, congratulations to the Braves, first off, first World Series since 1995. And it just seemed like the Astros were out of gas because having to use Jose Urquidy out of the bullpen in game five left them no options really in game six other than to pitch Luis Garcia on three days rest. And as we saw all postseason, when you put pitchers in short rest or put them in situations they're not used to, they've struggled big time. Whether it's using starters as relievers is another one we saw with the Dodgers, we saw with the Red Sox. Eventually that comes back to bite you. And Garcia had pitched okay the first time through the order. Then he faced Jorge Soler in the third. And Jorge Soler hit a huge three-run home run that gave people reminders of Albert Pujols' home run off of Brad Lidge in the playoffs many years ago. I loved his celebration, by the way, after the home run. In the regular season, that probably gets you plunked, but you do it in the postseason because you know how big that game is. Dansby Swanson, a two-run homer in the fifth. Freddie Freeman, a double and a home run later in the game in the seventh. And it was all Max Freed needed, who did allow the first two players... Astros to reach base in the first inning and then just settled in. Six innings, four hits, six strikeouts, 74 pitches, 50 strikes. And you look at why Atlanta won this series, and it was largely the long ball. They hit 11 home runs in the World Series. The Astros hit two. 
And both those home runs were from one player, Jose Altuve. As a team, the Braves hit 239. They actually struck out more than the Astros. Houston hit 224. Now, if you want to take it a step further and where the where this series was decided, you could also look at runners in scoring position. With runners in scoring position, Atlanta hit 235, but it had a slugging percentage of 559 with three homers. Astros, nine for 49, two doubles, 17 RBI, but 12 strikeouts, and an average of 184. That determines a lot. And you look at this Braves team, their rotation, despite having using two, use, having to use two openers, was better set up than Houston. Because you had Freed, you had Anderson. You had guys that could at least give you five innings. The Astros, with McCullers hurt, Zach Granke's not the same pitcher as he used to be. Garcia's a young pitcher. From Valdez is a young pitcher. They were they're not in that position just yet. And that's where they kind of missed somebody like Justin Verlander. They didn't have all year, but that's the kind of moment you kind of need another veteran pitcher in there to kind of bail out your bullpen. Uh, but Atlanta's bullpen was dominant. They were great. Uh, it's a good story, especially considering that when Ronald Acuna got hurt, people thought the Braves should have sold. Alex Anthopoulos took a different route. Didn't go crazy blockbuster buying, but he added outfielders to kind of replace Acuna's production between Peterson, Duvall, Rosario, and Soler, who Soler eventually is now the World Series MVP. Eddie Rosario dominated the NLCS. So while we looked at Freeman and Riley and Albies, it was really the guys the Braves traded for that made a huge impact. You're happy for Freddie Freeman, who was with the Braves during the tough years, and he finally got his championship. And I think what this post—I don't know what this postseason has really taught us. Usually, when you get off of an October, you learn something, and you kind of how you can copycat the Braves. I don't think you really can copycat the Braves because this is a team. It's kind of been in the making for a while. And you finally see the emergence of Ian Anderson, who is 4-0 with a 1.26 ERA in his postseason career. Freed stepping up on the big stage. Um, kind of the young hitters like Albies and Nakunia when he's healthy and Riley coming into their own and adding veterans to help that team. Even Swanson at shortstop has done a nice job. So you tip your cap to the Braves. Astros, still a good season. Getting to the World Series. But when you look at Houston's season, what I define it as, their bats went cold in the postseason. Altuve struggled. Alvarez struggled. Well, Altuve had the two homers, but besides that, didn't really do that much. Bregman was not very good. You could tell he was dealing with something. Alvarez hit up, hit 100. Correa, 261. Gurriel, 273. Their bats just never, besides Brantley, essentially. Brantley's good for getting hits, but they didn't drive anybody in. I mentioned the stat, 184th men scoring position. That's how you lose a series. And Atlanta found a way. So props to Brian Snicker, who's also been in that organization a long time. Uh, finally gets the rightful credit he deserves. We look forward to an offseason that I think there's more questions than answers because, of course, there's the looming potential work stoppage if no deal between the players and the owners are met by December 1st. And you wonder how long or how this offseason is going to look. So I don't think we can really do offseason storylines until that's decided. But other news in baseball this week, Buster Posey announcing his retirement. Um, 
to me, I think he's a Hall of Fame player. Think of the impact he's had with the Giants. Been a part of all those good championship teams. Uh, great leader in that clubhouse. Uh, always fun to watch. So congrats to Buster Posey on a great career. And something we didn't touch on last week, Bob Melvin, the manager of the Padres. I like that move. Padres need an experienced manager. They get one. Melvin gets a chance to win. He needs it after trying to win in Oakland. And the Mets are still looking for a president of baseball operations. And no, I have not accepted the accepted the job, nor has Ian given me permission to interview for that job. Uh, but coming up next, we'll be joined by my good friend at uh, Talking Chop and D2, he covers D2 Sports for the NCAA, Wayne Cavati. Uh, we'll be on, resident Braves fan. We'll talk about the World Series. We'll talk about the Braves and kind of what baseball's troubles are after this postseason in terms of being entertaining and their place in the grand scheme of sports. So stay tuned for that conversation with Wayne, and we'll talk about the college football playoff after that interview here on Kicking It With Kila. The World Series is in the books, and the Atlanta Braves are your champions for the first time since 1995. And joining me to talk about the World Series and, well, just celebrate about as Braves as somebody you might read on the Braves minor league as on, on the Braves site Talking Chop as he talks about the Braves minor league system on SB Nation. You can hear his voice on the D2 Nation podcast. He covers all things Vision 2 sports. Uh, Wayne Cavati is on the show. Wayne, how you doing today? Ah, you said it. I'm doing great. Uh, we, we got started covering the Braves minor leagues in 2015 and got to watch them win a, most of those prospects win a World Series uh, the other night. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing great and happy to be reunited with you, buddy. It's been a, it's been a while. Yeah, absolutely. Howie's happy to be talking to you on one of these uh, shows. We haven't done this in a good minute, so it's always great. We'll get into the whole. I, I like you coming from the minor league angle. We'll, we will get into that. Uh, but first, just give me your overall fan thoughts, because you, I'm sure as Braves fans, you've been through so much for the last couple of years with uh, blown leads here, crazy games here, crazy rules in, in games here. Just <laughs> the fact that Atlanta finally clinched it and clinched it in Houston, because after game five, I'm sure you probably weren't that confident, even though Freed and Anderson were going to be the next two pitchers and Houston was, who, who knows what they were going to be throwing. You know, it's remarkable that they didn't face, face an elimination game this whole postseason, right? Like, it was just, when you look at where they were in July, um, and last year, to be perfectly honest with you, the 2020 year, however you want to look at that, I know some people tease that the Dodgers aren't weren't real champions last year because it was a weird season, but I thought that was the team to do it, right? Even after they caught fire um, in August, after the trade deadlines, I still didn't know that this was the team that was going to do it. But... Once the end of September rolled around and, and October started going, everyone, you know, especially on the Talking Chop team, everyone started to believe that we could do it. You know, we would do our our prediction pieces, and ev- there were very few people that said the Braves would be on the losing side of each series as we moved on. And a lot of that had to do, obviously, with the big moves, which was, you know— Ricky, you and I have been Yankees guys forever, right? And we see Cashman pull off moves like that at the deadline, and, and we've seen them do things. But the way that you lost Ronald Acuna and, and pulled this magical deadline off of what appeared to be nobodies, right? Injured nobodies. Um, and, and uh, again, not face uh, an elimination game. The bullpen, which gave 
every Braves fan anxiety throughout the whole season was just unbelievable, minus a few kinks here and there. And then, you know, um, Max Fried bouncing back and just having that performance in game six. If you remember game six against Houston, like you said, obviously, you know, game five put a little scare. But, you know, Max Fried let those two first runners on, two lightly rinky-dink hit balls, almost breaks his ankle, has men on first and second, and then gets that side out in order. And, you know, one, two, the next three batters out, you just knew it. I, I felt like it was over. You know, and I was just, I'm like, this is playoff Max Fried. This is the guy we want. So, yeah, in answer to your question, uh, if I went to a theme park and they had the Atlanta Braves 2021 roller coaster, I would be the first online because it would be so exciting. <laughs> so, I want to look at the input here with Alex Alexanthopoulos because you and I have talked about over the last couple of years saying this guy doesn't make the big moves. When's the big move coming? He had the break his first year because he didn't know the system. And I know a criticism in Atlanta for him is like, where's the blockbuster? And you just mentioned it where, all right, Acuna goes down or what, 52 and 59 or something like that. You get Jock Peterson. Okay. You figure you get Jock Peterson to get out. You know, they gave up the first baseman and Bryce Ball. You're not going to need anyway. Then you go get Adam Duvall. Okay. Familiarity. Know the guy. You get Eddie Rosario for basically nothing and you get. Jorge Soler for I tried I, the package wasn't that much as far as I know. Casey Kalich, yeah, outside the top thirty prospect. <laughs> exactly. So you look at this, it's like, yeah, Anthopoulos did the moves, but he didn't have to do the big move either. And I think that's what makes this run by Atlanta so impressive. Was you lose an MVP caliber player, and you can replace an MVP player, yet you got three players that essentially could do one role in a sense. And it was kind of like Atlanta to win this without even having to gut their system, which is a team that hasn't won a title since 95 would normally have to gut their system to be like the all-in kind of Dodgers, Yankees. Well, actually, I shouldn't say Yankees. They don't gut their system. Uh, the Astros moves. Right. Um, it's it's really impressive. Completely. And, and you know, you, you mentioned Soler, uh, Rosario, who was injured when they traded for him, Duvall and Jock, right? And if you look at those guys, uh, as you mentioned, Jock came over a little bit earlier. Uh, Rosario was injured. So if you like take the average, those four guys played roughly 55 games for the, before the World Series, right? And in this weird year that there's so many 44 references for Hank Aaron, the four of them combined to hit 44 home runs in that 55 game stretch. And they drove in well over a hundred. So it's like you said, they got these four pieces to do what Acuna typically does right and it was it was and and like you said um aa just he didn't gut the system they gave up nothing casey kalich alex jackson kung fu panda and, and bryce ball whose prospect ranking to be honest with you i like bryce ball but his prospect ranking was a little inflated because his home runs were so glorious right and everyone loves the power hitter but there was a lot of que- question marks about him as a fielder and, and if he could hit anything else besides a home run. So really you gave up nothing. One one thing I think you need to look at though is, well, one thing AA said at, at, at the deadline was, you know, I, I forget what year it was in Toronto, right? When he had the chance to go for it and he kind of held tight. Um, and, and he said that, that tore at him all these years and he was never going to do that again. And 
while you said he didn't make the big blockbuster, these these guys, Duvall was leading the league in, in RBIs and I, I think home runs at the time. I, I'm not 100% sure at home runs, but RBIs definitely at the time. Rosario was injured and you knew that he kind of, his play kind of fit the Braves lineup and, um, truest park. So yeah, he, he wasn't looking sharp, but he was looking like the right piece. And you could say the same thing with Soler. And I think Jock was just a good platoon guy. You know, his righty lefty splits are a little bit different, but he was a, a experienced playoff guy, um, with, you know, Good splits and, and and could platoon and couldn't play defense and he was just the right fit for the team and he made all, man he made all the right moves in it and it was incredible and if you follow closely Jock became like the rally cry of the postseason it became Jocktober he had the pearl necklace he wrote that incredible uh, players tribune article that just rallied everybody um, so yeah all four pieces and, and just to touch on one thing. I think the biggest thing that he did, sure, he went out and got uh, Richard Rodriguez, but the pitching, he just stayed true to, right? And that was because there were a lot of injuries and there there were a lot of slumps, it seemed like, pitchers not pitching to their peak. And instead of tearing that down and worrying about it, he plugged and played. You know, Snicker made some – everyone will always question Snicker's every move, but he made right moves to keep the Braves in it. And then when they were able to turn the corner, it was the pitching that they wanted. They didn't have to go make that move. And you know that pitching always costs more. And they didn't have to go get a Scherzer, right? They didn't have to spend uh, the farm system to go get that kind of piece. And they just trusted what they had pitching. And, th- and when you can trust what you have pitching, um, that that's a huge benefit. And I think that, that just the way that they, they went into that break, they surprised even us at Talking Chop, and, and I think pretty much Mark Bowman and anyone else that covers the Braves and became buyers, they surprised everybody. But, you know, three, four months later, whatever it is, here we are, and every move was the right move. And the pitching thing be nearly uh, came back to bite them because, sadly, Charlie Morton goes down in game yeah. one. You're pitching Dylan Lee and Tucker Davidson in openers in the World Series, which you can get in that conversation later what it actually means for the sport to have that happen in back-to-back games. But uh, to me, I- I'm still very impressed what they did just to go for it. And it helped the Mets and Phillies weren't even that good. So, I mean, why wouldn't you go for it when two teams at division just are not exactly running away with anything and you have an opportunity? You have to take that chance. Kind of like we saw what St. Louis did um, as well, where, like, you have a shot, uh, go for it. So looking at the World Series from a bigger perspective, Give me like your two biggest takeaways from the World Series. What what are you going to remember from this six game series the most? Well, as a fan um, of this team, and even before, uh, I was at Freddie Freeman's first game, uh, and I was standing. I'll never forget it. I was standing next to I think it was his kindergarten or first grade teacher. She flew in from California. And it was his family, and I was standing there, and his teacher, like, and I just realized that how special this this guy was. Um, that his, you know, of course his family was there, but his teachers flew out, and just like regular neighbors, you know, came all the way to Atlanta. And I just felt like there was something special there, and it didn't take him long at all to prove that he was a special player. And you know, they had those first two playoff runs with him there, but then he, man, he went through the worst times arguably some of the worst times in the history of the Atlanta franchise. You know, they had some really bad years in the 80s, don't get me wrong, but um, it, it was really uh, gloomy 
down here, you know, in Atlanta for a couple of years. And he was the only, you know, steady force throughout that. And, and he was, he never complained and he never did anything. And, and then, um, you know, the last four years, he's got an MVP award. He's become the, the centerpiece of this amazing run. And now he's got a world series championship. Um, so my biggest takeaway is that I hope that they throw every dollar at him and keep him here because I think more things can come. And then, you know, it's, it's a different, when you look at the Royals, for example, what they did, they, they built their team on that, on those high draft picks, right? And it was boom or bust and you knew you had that small window, um, to, to do something and they did it, right? Back to back worlds, not championships, but they, they went to two world series and, um, what I think here is different, right? You already have Acuna locked up. You already have Albies locked up and Riley. I mean, the guy just came out of nowhere, not to me, and you know this, Ricky, Austin Riley, I've always been the high man on, and we saw what he's capable of this year. He made some great defensive plays, too, so I think he he checked off all the boxes, but I think this is very sustainable as opposed to the the Hosmers and everyone else that that bolted on Kansas City, you know, two years into the run, Um, and and I think as long as I can figure out a way to get Freddie back, um, the biggest takeaway here is that they did this without Acuna. Okay, and there is you will if you go on social media and you listen to the incorrect voices, you will hear the they don't need Acuna debate. And that is a complete farce. Okay, because they wouldn't have even sure they were under 500 at the All-Star break. They would have been about 20 games out of first place if it wasn't for Acuna. He was the only guy doing anything in the first half of the season. And if you think that a guy that's legitimate 40-40 threat is it going to make this team even better next year um, when he's back, you know, and for the next eight years with that contract? Um, you're nuts. I mean, he's a he's a large, large reason the, the Braves are World Series champions. I don't think there's a single Brave that will tell you differently. And so I think the takeaway, the, the large takeaway, just I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but the large takeaway is that the the Cubs way that they did it, they you know, they built on the prospects, the Royals, they they, they all had these small windows. But I think the Braves, I think their window is a lot larger, especially if they can get Freeman back in town. And if you, I, I agree with you on Riley, first off. I mean, being able to now just stick to third base, not worry about having to play left field, I think did wonders for him. So I agree with you there. And I also think when you look at the Braves long term, I mean, look at the division. Washington's rebuilding. Miami's not ready to take that next step. I mean, the Phillies, you have to actually get to the playoffs to me to think they're actually going somewhere with Joe Girardi and the Mets. I think you and I have both turned down the assistant GM, the, the uh, president of the baseball <laughs> operations for the Mets. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. So it's still a good position for the Raves to be in that they're in at least be in postseasons and you would think and get more opportunities. Uh, to me, I have three and we can go through each of them individually. Uh, one, I don't want to hear, and I, I, I'm a big analyst. I'm not a big analytics person, as you know. You and I joke about analytics all the time, but they tell you don't worry about the home run. You can't worry about hitting the home run. Well, when you have a series where one team hits 11 and one team hits two, and you try to tell me home runs don't matter, where most of this postseason, whoever hit the most home runs wins, and a sport that's still trying to be pleasing to watch while also being analytical, if you're having it just be home run or bust, it, that's kind of what this World Series was in a way, wasn't it? Because both these, Atlanta hit 239, Houston hit 224, and really it was just about the Braves getting the home runs at the opportune times and getting home runs with men on base and Jorge Soler doing his best hour pools impression. <laughs> it still is 
it's a fact that the game, like people want to argue, like you can't rely on the home run, but if you look at the numbers, you teams kind of do. Uh, I mean, yeah, there, there's no two ways around it, and it's it's funny that that's where the Braves wound up, right? You got an Ozzy Albies whose power just has continued to develop, but you know the first few years that uh, you know we the guys at Talking Chop and myself watched him, we didn't care about his power, right? And then all of a sudden he's just the, the heart of the lineup bat. Um, and kudos to him for dropping in the order and and delivering his best game of the World Series, by the way. Um, but and then you know like a dance like their infield for example the Braves look at their infield Freeman Albies um, Swanson and Riley what, what did they have almost 150 home runs just between the four of them right and then, and it's like you said and then Soler was just raking those home runs um, and Eddie Rosario had that big NLCS with the big power hits too but I mean it, it is the way the game's going it is boomer bust but I also think. Um, Watching this Braves team, and of course, there's a lot of question marks next year. What exactly this Braves team will look like with with the Solaires and the Duvals and all those question marks. But I think with an Ozzy Abies, who does rely a lot on his power, but we saw in that game six, he's still a guy that could get the big hit and cause some havoc and win everyone a free taco with his stolen bases. You know, I think in October. Um, it's always been a little bit of that wait for the home run, you know, because people are just so it's, it's such a long grind. Um, I don't know if that, um, I mean, clearly you're right. 11 to two, right. Uh, of course the Braves benefited yeah, from that. Quick, Altuve is the only Astro who had a home run in the world series. So really <laughs> it, it, it's crazy in that I, I think they just caught Houston at the right time. I mean, look at some of these numbers because Houston was so streaky in the last three games against the Red Sox. Alvarez was two for 20. Bregman two for twenty one, Correa six for twenty three, Guriel six for twenty two. It seems like none of those guys really ever got going, and that was going to be key if they were going to beat the Braves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and that's you know that's October baseball. It's not always the best team. It's the team that's playing hot, and the Braves were definitely hot. And I, I mean, and you can even look at Austin Riley, who is such a big home run guy, but his his key RBI hits of this of the World Series were doubles. You know, for the most part. Uh, even a single. Um, so I think I, I completely agree with what you're saying. You know, the long ball is becoming launch angle, this launch angle, that exit velocity, this exit velocity, that. And for guys like you and me who, who don't care about that, I mean, obviously we care, you know what I mean, but it, it's not our primary focus. It's kind of discouraging, but in the same sense, um, I think in the, in the long run and even the Astros overall, it's like you said, they were cold. I think in the, in the long run, there are still teams that know how to win a game, and unfortunately, our Yankees are not one of them, right? They they are the definition of boomer bust um, lineup, and it it completely backfired on them. Same with the Red Sox, you know that that lineup could only go so far. Um, so we'll see, we'll see. Um, obviously, come next season, but I mean that's the way it's trending. It's hard to disagree with you. All right, number two for me, Ian Anderson is the next big game pitcher in the sport. You look at eight postseason outings, he's 4-0 with a 1.26 ERA. He was fantastic in Game 3 of the World Series, and I thought the only mistake Snicker made, and I don't think Snicker made the mistake of going, taking him out. Like, I, I, I agree you can't go the whole nine innings, especially in this day and age where pitchers only go 90 pitches or 100 pitches at a time, which is maybe another sad part of the sport. But I wanted to go one more inning. 
And the reason I thought that is, okay, if I can get six from my starting pitcher, and I know I'm throwing openers in four and five because of the Morton injury, I need to get Anderson as many outs as possible. In a game three, it's not a must-win. It's not an elimination. I have to manage to kind of the series, not the game. I think Snicker got away with a couple of managing for the game, not the series kind of moments, which is fine. That happens to every good manager. But besides that, the way this guy pitches in big games, the closeout of the Dodger game, even though he had to come out early for a pinch hitter, um, the game three of the World Series, the games against Milwaukee, um, and even saw it last year, too, when he came on the scene. And I don't have a Freddie Freeman kindergarten teacher, but I was at Ian Anderson's start um, in New York in April. I think he had friends. I was friends there for that limited crowd that was at the ballpark. And it was so impressive to watch him pitch. I mean, to me, you look at him right now, we could talk about Freed, and, and Freed had some good moments, too. But Anderson is just going to be just 24, and he's pitching that well on this stage. I think he really is the next big game pitcher in the sport. I I mean I call him playoff Ian, right? Uh, because it, it's a different it's a different person, you know. Um, heading into the playoffs, there were a lot of question marks, like you said. You know, he had an up and he had an up and down year. It's fair to say that, but he, again, he's only 24, and you know he came on the scene in the last year's playoffs when they needed a starter because they had no starters left by the time the playoffs started, and and he was remarkable as a 23 year old in that weird COVID season where n- nobody knew. I mean, as a guy that that's watched Ian Anderson from the day he was drafted up the minor league ladder, when they called him up last year in, in the COVID year, I, I thought it, I'm like they're going to ruin him, right? I, I, he's it's way too early. I understand they need a pitcher, but I don't know that he's ready. Um, I, it, you know, when he was in Gwinnett, if you remember, AAA was tinkering with the ball, whether it's going to be the big league ball or whatever, and and he he's so much with that changeup and his his breaking ball. And his spin rates that he was, you could see him, this is before the first call up as I'm mentioning, you could see him struggling with his command, which is not an Ian Anderson thing as we've quickly come to learn. You could see him struggling with the ball as, as he was learning the new grip. And I was just concerned. Obviously we didn't see him in spring training. And I think the, the, the key words of what you said is big game, right? And he has this way to d- channel his inner you know, whatever, his inner mojo, his inner pitchability, whatever the word is you want to use. And when he's on that big stage, he's playoff Ian. And, and, and he's a different pitcher. Um, and, you know, going back to the, the Snicker thing on the five innings, it was, it was, if he went out in the sixth inning, I don't disagree with you. I, I don't, the Braves won, so I, was, I, I wasn't sitting here throwing things at the TV like, what are you doing, right? Um I think he was up second the next inning. I, excuse me for not remembering that. But I think he was up the next inning, which was also a little confusing. Like, why wouldn't you just see what he could do? But even if he went out there in the sixth inning, it was the top of the lineup for the third time around. And I get he was only at 74 pitches at the time. But, you know, analytics, part of the analytics is how many pitches you throw. And then part of the other part of analytics is how you do the third time through the rotation. And maybe there was something there. That Snicker didn't want a chance, and and there was no doubt that Snicker had complete faith in his bullpen, and that they were going to pitch in every game in, in this postseason because that's pretty pretty much what they did. Um, so I, I didn't hate I didn't hate the move. Of course, it's like you said, we all knew he wasn't going to throw the complete game, and I do agree with you. I would have liked to see him come out in that sixth inning with a very very short leash leash to see what happened. But in the same sense, you know, Snit really. 
there's one or two moves you could look at that he did with the pitching staff in the postseason and scratch your head. But for the most part, his execution was tremendous in the postseason. And that's what, you know, when the guys at Talking Chop and, and myself who were discussing the move, obviously were in our chat throughout the whole World Series. We just kept saying the same thing. It's like, look, you got to trust Snitker, right? Everything, everything he's done this postseason has, has been gold. So, um, was it yet the backlash the next day? Obviously with the killing the game, he had a no hitter, blah, blah, blah. Sure. But I wanted to see the Braves win World Series. And at that point, I'm trusting the guy that's making every right move up until that point. So it was kind of, you know, a double edged sword for me wanting to see Ian do it, but I also didn't hate the move, you know. If that makes sense. No, I, I agree with you. To me, I would have, like you said, I would have had probably had somebody warming up to begin the inning. And worst case, we gave up a home run to the top of the order. It's one one. I don't think you're really dinging yourself in that situation. But it leads me to my third point: the Braves bullpen. Uh, the big question mark going into the postseason: okay, how would this bullpen hold up, especially when they were playing Milwaukee? Even though Devin Williams uh, ended up injuring himself and not being able to pitch, we just thought Milwaukee had the better bullpen. We saw the Dodgers had the better bullpen than Atlanta with Jansen and Trinan and Gratterall and all and all those guys. I don't think Houston, because I don't think anybody scared uh, anybody in the Astro bullpen other than maybe Presley and, and Graveman had some good moments, but nobody else was really like, oh my gosh, I can't face that guy. But for the collective unit for Atlanta with A.J. Minter throwing more pitches than he had all season and, and being effective, Luke Jackson, Tyler Matzik became like brave folklore in the NLCS for what he did. To me, a, the Braves bullpen was always the question all year. And like you said, collectively, they all did a fantastic job. And, and no one has an answer, right? It doesn't make sense. Uh, Will Smith went from, um, what was his name on the Diamondbacks? Byung Young Kim? Was that his Yeah. He went from Byung Young Kim all season to Mariano Rivera in October, right? He. 11 innings pitched, no runs allowed, six saves, and two wins. It was, and there was never Will Smith, even when he got his saves, I think he had 37 on the year, somewhere around there. Even when he got his saves, there was usually a leadoff walk. There was probably a double in there, and, and Brave fans were just pulling their hair out the whole time. You never felt that, right? It was clean innings for the most part. It was never, he wasn't falling behind in counts. It was remarkable. And, you know, Jorge Soler, was the World Series MVP. I'm not going to say that, but if you look from game one to of of the NLDS to game six of the World Series, Tyler Matzik's the MVP. Uh, I mean, that that two innings in that Dodgers game are two of the largest innings um, in Braves history, certainly Atlanta history, of the Braves organization. You know, the, the organization is so old, but... Those were two of the, the biggest innings I've ever seen a reliever come on in, in that situation. And, you know, and, and another thing I like, and Minter, Minter, this is why Mike Maroth, Mike Maroth is the pitching coach in Gwinnett, uh, for the Stripers. And he, you know, uh, Minter was lost earlier in the season. They sent him down. He went down there. Um, and he, he was a closer. He was the full-time closer for about two weeks. And he was, you couldn't touch him, right? He was back on track. And I think a large part of it's Mike Maroth. You look at the World Series, another guy that came through, Kyle Wright. Kyle Wright spent a whole year in AAA for the most part. I think he made two spot starts, but spent a whole year 
in AAA working with Marath, and look what he did in the World Series. And I think a, a couple guys, there's a couple other cases that that just show what a great pitching development team they have. You know, Dan Meyer in Mississippi as well got Spencer Strider going, and Spencer Strider made his big league debut. You know, Bryce Elder, these guys. So I think that's a testament to A.J. Minter, you know, and, and Mike Marath, like I said. Um, but Luke Jackson, look, Luke Jackson is an emotional roller coaster himself. He was great in the NLDS. He was good for the most part in the NLCS, and then he was great again in the World Series, right? And I think he needed to get over that Dodgers hump, and I do love that Snicker went right back to him in the World Series, right? They didn't put him as a fifth or sixth inning guy. He said, I'm going to use you when I'm going to use you, whatever inning that happens to be, but I'm not going to... I, it's not gonna. I'm not gonna bring you in when it's seven nothing. He's like, I'm still gonna use you the way I'm gonna use you. And and Jackson responded, and and it was like you said, a collective whole. There was just they were untouchable, and it, it was really fun to watch. I mean, of course, they were stress filled innings just because tight World Series games are always gonna be that. Even when you know we had Mariano Rivera as Yankee fans on the mound, they were still you were biting your nails just waiting for that final out, but. Man, it was once that night shift, as they were called, came in because uh, we can't call in the bullpen anymore. And then once the night shift came in, you just knew um, that, that there was likely going to be a W at the end of the day. And it was really fun to watch. And you throw in also the unsung hero that is 26-year-old Kyle Wright in game in um in the middle games of that series where you're, you kind of think, oh, Kyle Wright's a bust, fifth pick in the draft. And it's like, Dude's 26. He's got time to figure it out. And he did have that kind of moment. Um, still very impressive. So to wrap it up with this, we go into the off season and I think the sport is still at a crossroads because while it was entertaining for Braves and Astros fans, it was this, one of the least watched world series. There were not that many close games. You had the case for kind of analytics still rule the day, and that pisses off all the old school fans of the sport that they're trying to keep and they're trying to bring these new school people. What to you, Wayne, is the biggest storyline this winter? Is is there going to be a winter, right? Uh, yeah. uh, I think that's what what we're worried about right now. I mean, from from Braves country, it's obviously Freddie Freeman. Uh, I mean, if you're you're asking for a singular focus from Braves country. Freddie Freeman is is the story. I think there's a lot of people that will be watching the the Ozuna situation and see, um, you know, his, it looks like, uh, unfortunately, his contract is so big, it looks like he's going to be part of the Braves' future plans. But, uh, again, we'll see what happens there. But I, I think the biggest story of the offseason is going to be the hesitancy of teams waiting to see what happens December 1st. And, and right now, uh, all things are not pointing to the right direction for fans. Um, and I think, you know, they, over the next few weeks, maybe the, the analytics versus non-analytics debates will uh, continue and, and is the game dying and this n- nonsense, you know, in the, in the post uh, in the post full season slumber that, when there's not that many things to write at the moment, I think um, that's what a lot of the focus will be on. And, you know, and I just want to touch on that, that I think it's like you said, they, they are struggling to get viewers, okay? And you can question a lot of things that Manfred does, whether it's the right or the wrong move. Why wasn't the DH here? Replay is awful, right? The whole replay system needs to be revamped. What you can replay, what you can't replay, it's just – it's 
it's like I, I tweeted out the other day, the, the written rules of baseball are almost as confusing as the unwritten rules. And that that's not the way it should be. So I think there's a lot that inst- uh, that helps with that viewership struggling. But I also think that a big thing is that instead of promoting the game, I think a large part of the media is assisting the skepticism towards the game, right? Like when, when Ian Anderson was pulled, there should have been maybe some articles praising Snicker for getting the win. But instead, it was 100%, here's what's wrong with the game. Here's why it's killing it. And, and you know, you if you want that stance, that's fine. But at the end of the day, the Braves won a pivotal World Series game in bringing home a championship. So is that wrong, right? If, if you're winning the game and it's be, and it's not by a certain way that someone else likes it, you're still winning the game. At the end of the day, analytics, old school approach, whatever your thing is, the object of the game is to win, okay? And there's no wrong way to win unless there's trash cans involved, okay? So if you, if you don't want to do it the analytics way, if you don't want to do it this way and you win – you want a ball game, and and that praising that and and modeling that decision, but and and still proving your and saying your point that you disagree with it, but it worked, is a better way to approach it than the media did. And when you have half of the fan base of Major League Baseball saying, "Yeah, we hate analytics. We told you so. See this, see this," and then you have the majority of the national media coming out, "Yep, you guys were right." You know, it just it fuels the fire and isn't helping baseball. And there has to be a way that they figure out to promote the game and not to continuously kill it. And I think it's all parties involved. Um, but I think over the next few weeks for the baseball guys like you and myself, the, the major storyline is what we see on, uh, you know, come December. Yeah, I agree with you on the Universal DH. It has to happen. It needs to happen now because you don't have to worry about pinch hitters or anything in that situation, double switches, whatever. Just let, let the game play out. It's supposed to be played out. Maybe these pitchers can go longer in these games. Now there's no DH. You know, I mean, now there would be a DH. You don't have to worry about that. That's. But I think Manfred did something, said something wrong, but said something that finally you can admit to. The game's regional. The game is not national anymore. Um, and whether that's a fault of baseball not being able to hype up stars or not being able, it's a regional sport. Mm-hmm. And, and it's understandable. Look, they're not basketball. They're not football. And I think they finally admitted to themselves, look, we can't get to that. Um, I think the issue is, and it's not – I agree with you with Snicker. Like, you got you got a credit from the win. If you're not a fan of the two teams, you're watching the game to be entertained. You're watching the game to kind of, like, get into the ball game and, and get into it. And you care about the analytics as a diehard baseball fan watching it. But you kind of have the one thing when you have analytics taking over the game. Really, the only excitement you get is when the manager or the hitter or the pitcher makes a mistake and doesn't follow the analytics. Usually, so it's like you're trying to be entertaining. I mean, you're trying to and be analytic and win, which is a thousand percent what you should do. But it's kind of taking it out of the sport. And the one thing that I, I kind of still struggle with. I guess you and I both. And we can wrap it up with this topic with minor league pitching. Is there's not we talk about how there's never enough pitching. I mean, there's never enough pitching, but there's never guys that actually throw five innings anymore. Like I, I get we're not at the point where we can go seven, eight innings anymore, but we can't go five or six. Mm. Like that to me is like, that's a big problem for this sport because you what are the what are the positions we tend to market more than others besides power hitters is starting pitching. We we market. Pitching matchups. 
and to sell to Fox. All right, yeah, game four of the World Series is going to have Zach Granke against uh, Dylan Lee to start the game. <laughs> or game five, we're going to have uh, Framber Valdez on short rest, which, which we can argue short rest pitching was terrible in this postseason, against Tucker Davidson. It's it's a, it's hard to sell. You can't sell Morton versus uh, if he was healthy McCullers. Like to not have sexy pitching matchups to sell, it doesn't help the sport at all. No, and, and a large part of it's like you said, if they were fully healthy, right, you would have had the top three. Just talking about the top three, or even if you want to talk about them being fully healthy, right, fully fully healthy, ideally on paper, you would have Morton, Soroka, Freed. Anderson versus like Verlander, McCullers, you know, and the, and the rest of that staff. And all of a sudden, it, but the way that baseball is now, these guys throw so hard. Um, they're they're a lot safer with injuries, you know. And, and you, it's going to be very rare that come October, whether you want to call it analytics or not, that you're going to have the pitching matchups that you want to sell. And I I, I agree with you on, on Dylan Lee and Tucker Davids, right? Like that that is very hard to market, right? But those that that wasn't the way the Braves played baseball during the season. That was out of necessity, right? And and I think you could say the same for the Astros for some part. And I completely agree on the short rest. By the way, that every it backfired everywhere in the postseason. So I, I don't know what the answer is. Is basically what I'm saying because there was there was very little options um, of what they could do. You look at it from both sides. Like the Dodgers, I feel lost the series because they had, because they wanted to use Max Scherzer to close out the NLDS. Yep. them in the CS. You had starters using being used as relievers constantly by both LA and Boston. Ended up dinging them. And Houston, Luis Garcia is not a guy who could throw on three days rest. He's not ready for that moment yet. Yeah. Um, Rikidi going on short re- pitching out of the bullpen in Game Five. In a game, yeah, you have to win. But you needed Arkady for game six. Mm-hmm. You needed a starting pitcher to actually go deep into game six because you have to save the bullpen. It's one of those things where it's – I'm not asking – you. I get it we can't really develop aces anymore or we there's going to be very minimal that we can develop aces. But I'd like to develop guys that can go two times through the order. Like that to me, if you could just have that and you could have pitchers go five or six, I think it helps because now I can say, okay, I'm not just ca- – I can count nine outs a lot more entertaining than I can count 18 because the amount, of, the amount of bullpen changes, and I get it, playoff ads went longer than regular ads. The fact that game one took four hours or game five takes four hours on a when people got to work the next day, I get it. West Coast is cool. Can we start these games at 730? Like, can, yeah. can we start If you're going to have analytics make the game longer, start the game earlier. Mm-hmm. No, I, that's I agree there. I mean, you know, even as a Braves fan, I was, uh, I'm older, you know, I'm struggling to stay awake through the whole thing, even as exciting as it was. And, you know, it, it takes its toll on you and the length of games. Uh, but, you know, and, and I hate to say that I don't like the length of games because the solutions that MLB comes up with to shorten the games, I don't like, right? I, I, I the seven inning stuff, I'm not, uh, I don't hate it, but, I, I'm okay without it, but the the the, um, the the runner on second thing and extra innings. By the time you get to extra innings, you're already three and a half hours into the game. The way the game is played now, that's not saving any time, right? We want to get the game down a little less. 
Like when Pedro Martinez and Greg Maddox used to pitch, and you could be in, in and out of the ballpark in two and a half hours, right? Like, but that's like you said, those guys aren't around anymore. They don't exist, and and the ones that do are the Max Scherzers or guys like that that are, or unfortunately Jacob Degrom. You know, Scherzer's yeah, cool. on his way out. Who's you know he's going to be what thirty eight this year, so he's only got a couple seasons left. And and Degrom's getting to that point where we hope he could stay healthy so he could see him do what he wants to do. I can legitimately count the number of true aces in the sport on two hands. That's really what it's, what it's come down to. I mean, maybe yeah. there's budding aces along the way, but I, I tried doing this during the season. I, I really believe it's only like 10. And maybe you can expand it to like two or three other guys that are up and coming. Um, yeah. But besides that, it's, that to me is the bigger issue for the sport than ratings or regional or something like that. Because when it becomes home runs or bust and home runs stopping entertaining, uh, that's where the issue will kind of lie. But that's a big picture issue, and we'll see how they fix it if they do in the uh, labor negotiation. But, Wayne, uh, let the listeners know where they can listen to the D2 Nation podcast, follow Talk and Shop, how they can follow you on Twitter, and what, whatever you want to promote, my friend, feel free. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, we'll start with the Braves talk. Um, you can always follow me on Twitter for everything. My Twitter timeline is either Braves Minor Leagues or – deep to uh, sports information with a lot of a heavy focus on college baseball. And that's at U of D Wayne Diaz in Delaware, where I went. Um, you could, again, talking chop, we're about to ramp up the minor league um, postseason prospect reviews. Um, I started writing those today. So talking chop.com. We're always there. Same on Twitter. If you want to find us, it's at talking chop and the D2 nation podcast where we just finished our 12th episode. It's still young. Um, you could get it in my D2 Report newsletter, which is at Substack. Just search for D2 Report. Or you could listen to it on Spotify, Apple, um, Google, Anchor, and watch it on YouTube, all under the D2 Nation podcast. Sure, check it out, especially D2 Basketball getting underway. Wayne's going to be all over the D2 Basketball uh, all season long. Uh, so if you're a big fan of uh, small school collegiate athletics, uh, Wayne is like, top five and like where uh where to get that information from uh wait thanks again for hopping on the show congratulations i'm glad you got to enjoy this because i i stayed clear of texting because i didn't want to jinx you guys so i was trying to like (laughs) uh get out of the way but uh congratulations thanks for hopping on again my friend and we'll talk again soon yeah thanks again for having me my special thanks to wayne cavati for hopping on the show uh talking about some uh, Braves baseball. We'll do, obviously do some baseball as the offseason goes on, but uh, bulk, once the sport goes in the offseason, we tend to put it on the back burner more so than at the forefront. Uh, mostly, as we said, during the fall, we'll do a lot of football, college football. College basketball starts next week with the Champions Classic, so we're going to get into college basketball mode in due time. Uh, but we're going to spend this segment and final segments of the show looking at the college football playoff a brief look at the NHL. We go to the playoff, and as they mentioned at the top of the show, the first rankings came out, and the committee told, gave you a message without flat-out sending a message. There's no surprise Georgia was number one. Georgia's a really good football team. Best team in the sport right now. Their defense is great. Their running game is great. Alabama, too, not surprising. Uh, it's a team that I think people give credit to Alabama. They, they bounced back after the loss to A&M. But we'll see. Obviously, the, that path is determined for is predetermined for Alabama. As long as they get to the SEC championship and they beat Georgia, they're in anyway. What was impressive this week was Michigan State. 
down 16 points to Michigan in the third quarter. Kenneth Walker, the third, has kind of put his stamp on the Heisman Trophy right now. Five touchdowns. He was fantastic. It was, he was fun to watch. Uh, and Mel Tucker and Sparty gets a win. They move up to number three. But the message the committee sent, and Oregon's four, and we're going to get into Oregon in a little bit, was the Cincinnati. Everybody was looking to see where Cincinnati was on the first ranking because where they are on the first ranking kind of is a precursor of where they could end up. Well, Cincinnati was number six behind a one-loss Ohio State. And essentially what the committee is telling you is, yeah, you beat Notre Dame, but who else did you beat? And the argument basically is you're a non-power five. Who else are you supposed to play? Cincinnati scheduled Indiana when Indiana had a good year last year. And honestly, Cincinnati played a healthier Indiana than Ohio State got to play. So what the committee basically is telling you is join a power conference. And we'll put you in the conversation. Which Cincinnati is eventually going to do. They're in the Big 12. But with SMU losing to Houston, there is no ranked team left on Cincinnati's schedule. So what exactly is there left for them to do? Other than stomp on the last four teams they're playing. Tulsa, South Florida. I guess they beat SMU. It's still a good win if SMU has one loss. And East Carolina. The problem for Cincinnati in the eyes of the committee is they didn't stomp on Navy and they didn't stomp on Tulane. But when you look at those games in particular, and you watched, and I don't doubt the committee watches the games. I'm sure they do. Look back to the Navy game. Look back to the Tulane game. And you tell me if Cincinnati had any danger of losing that game. The answer was no. Since he might have played flat for about a quarter or so, quarter and a half, but there were never any danger of losing either of those games. As opposed to, I know Oklahoma's dropped to eighth, which I kind of applaud the committee for doing because this is not these Oklahoma teams are different night and day from the first half, second half of the year. Oklahoma got embarrassed against Kansas even though they won. It, they were in danger of losing to Kansas. So I don't blame them for being number eight. But I wish the committee would just flat out not make it a farce and just say, you know what, we're not including non-power fives. And that's why if Cincinnati goes undefeated and they don't make the playoff and they've done everything they possibly can, they played well against Georgia in the bowl game a year ago to kind of keep the national reputation going. They beat a one-loss Notre Dame, beat a team on the road in Notre Dame that only has one loss, and that's to them, which is a top-10 team right now. As a non-Power 5, that's huge because you don't get a lot of chances to do that. These Power 5s get chances night and day to play great teams. And we look at the system as it is, and the number 14 usually gets their doors blown off in these games. Why can't Cincinnati get that chance? Why can't I watch Desmond Ritter against, let's say, Georgia after Cincinnati nearly beat Georgia a year ago? Albeit Georgia had bowl opt-outs and all that stuff, but why couldn't you give Cincinnati another opportunity? Jerome Ford is a fun running back to watch. Kind of one of the more underrated backs in the country. Their defense is playing well. And again, if Cincinnati, if there's the problem Cincinnati is going to have when you look at the rankings is there are teams behind them that have chances. Oklahoma is at number eight, but they play Baylor, number 12 on the road next week. Oklahoma State on the road at Bedlam, number 11. And then somebody in the Big 12 championship, and they have Iowa State. So Oklahoma is going to have plenty of chances to improve their resume. Michigan, who has one loss at number seven, has a chance to improve their resume because they play at Penn State at Ohio, and then home to Ohio State at the end of the month. So a one loss Michigan could still get in. I think that's really the cutoff in terms of teams that can jump Cincinnati. But if Oregon wins out and wins the Pac-12, if Ohio State wins out and wins the Big Ten, 
So then here would be the question. I think it's fair to ask this question. You could go, no shot the committee would do this. But really? Throw this scenario out there. There's one spot left. It is between a two-loss Alabama. Alabama wins out, loses to Georgia in the SEC championship. And Cincinnati, who's undefeated. Would the committee put a two-loss Alabama in over an undefeated Cincinnati? I don't think you can definitively say they would not. And to me, that's not fair about this system. And that's why the system, I know they've been talking about this week, needs to go to 12. It needs to have every conference considered. It needs a group of five considered. It needs more representation than four teams. Because when you have a team like Cincinnati, who apparently isn't allowed to have games where they're just not playing their greatest, but they still... and it, but they, I would be more harder on Cincinnati if Navy almost beat them or if Tulane almost beat them. That Cincinnati-Navy score is 27-20 because Navy got a late score and recovered an onside kick. Really, it's about a two-score game. Tulane is essentially a three-score game. And you look at Tulane, who Oklahoma had problems with in the first week of the season. The Green Wave were down 14-12 at the half, and Cincinnati scored 19 points. In, or, yeah, pretty much 17 points in the second half and, and pulled away. But even at 14-12 at the half, you didn't think Tulane was going to win that game. But I do think the committee did a good job in rewarding head-to-head in the initial rankings. They put Oregon ahead of Ohio State, which people argue Ohio State's playing better than Oregon. But I give Oregon the benefit of the doubt because they're starting to play better. That game against Stanford, they didn't have Joe Moorhead, their offensive coordinator. They lost in a weird way on the road, even though Stanford's a bad team right now. And you look at the Ducks, and I think you can also say if you're making the case for Ohio State, Oregon had C.J. Verdell in that game. They don't now. But for the initial rankings to reward head-to-head, and they did it in multiple spots. Oklahoma State's ahead of Baylor because of head-to-head. Mississippi State's ahead of Kentucky, head-to-head. Wisconsin's ahead of Iowa, head-to-head. There's more of a sample to have that head-to-head now than ever before, so I actually like that concept. We talked about OU at 8. I like that. Uh, Wake Forest is number nine. Um, I'm hoping still to get somebody for that student section showdown game. It's a huge game against North Carolina this week, noon on ABC. And Wake Forest still has NC State. NC State's number 19 in the country. That game is next week. But I don't really know even if if Wake went undefeated, they would get in because Pitt lost to Miami over the weekend. That kind of takes some shine off of the ACC championship in a way. But again, this is all going to play out. Michigan State's playing Ohio State and Penn State to end the year. Alabama's eventually going to play Georgia. You can't overreact too much to the first rankings, but I agree with Joey Galloway who said it since he had six is a sign of disrespect. This committee doesn't believe in them. This committee doesn't believe in power fives. They can tell you all they want. They're lying to you. Just look at the messages they are sending and tell me that they're not lying to you. And that creates for somewhat of an unfair system still with four teams. Uh, the big games this week, we're going to, of course, do top five on the next show on Saturday. Uh, the only test, I think, for a top team is going to be Michigan State at Purdue. How does Michigan State handle after a, a big win against Michigan? Can they go on the road? Purdue's beaten a top five team already this year. You can debate how good Iowa really is, but that's still a good win for Purdue. And then to get that game at home, can Michigan State take care of business? Auburn at Texas A&M, good top 15 matchup in the SEC of two lost teams. Uh, LSU-Alabama, I don't really think there's much of an upset there. LSU's underdogs by about 29. 
and Oregon is at Washington. Washington is a team at four and four, but the Huskies won their last two. They, uh, yeah, they won their last two games against Arizona against Stanford. They're four and four. It's a night game in Seattle. Tough place to play. Uh, maybe Washington pulls out a surprise, but I think people put Oregon on upset alert, and they, I don't think they really should be. So if all things hold, Georgia plays Missouri. Georgia should roll there, and Ohio State plays at Nebraska. Ohio State should roll there. So you're not going to get any shakeup, I think, next week's rankings. But then you have the following week where you have Oklahoma, Baylor, NC State, Wake, Michigan, Penn State, uh, Mississippi State, Auburn. Like those, now you're going to start as you get the later November things start to shake out differently. And that's going to make for a fun system. But as we get into next week, I don't. we'll preview our top five games of the week. I don't think you're going to get a lot of big games, uh, big shake in the rankings next week. Uh, by the way, I want to throw out this disclaimer. Um, I want to let the news kind of play out a little bit more. Great reporting, though, by Baxter Holmes on ESPN about the allegations of racism and misogyny with the... Um, for that allegations against Sun's owner Robert Sarver. I kind of want to see how that plays out a little bit more. It broke on Thursday. Uh, we will discuss that more in detail um, on Saturday's show, so keep that in mind. Um, I will wrap up today with the Jack Eichel story. Thursday morning, uh, Jack Eichel finally traded from the Sabres to the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Buffalo gets Peyton Krebs, Alex Tuck, a future first-round pick and a future second-rounder. Uh, Vegas will get a future third-rounder back. If Vegas' first-round pick in 22 isn't in the top 10, the Sabres get the first-rounder and this 2023 second-rounder with Vegas getting the third-rounder. If Vegas' first-round pick is a top 10, which I don't think it will be, Buffalo gets a 2023 first-rounder and a 2024 second-rounder. This is a big deal for uh, the Vegas Golden Knights because if you believe in Jack Eichel's skill set, he could score goals. Three, he has 355 points in 375 games. Now, the problem with Eichel right now, um, he's going to skate in six weeks, uh, but he's having a procedure to get an artificial disc replacement. So he's going to be out for the foreseeable future. Vegas is making this deal to get, be fine for the playoffs. Right now, they're four and five. Um, they're out William Carlson, who's a big part of their team. But this is a deal Vegas is making to get a good player for later in the year. They're hoping to just try to get by right now, get through the adversity, and add a player in Eichel that can score goals. And and, and for Buffalo, they're off to a good start. They're 5-3-1. and one. Uh, Tuck's a good young player. He's, of course, hurt right now, but I think they're going to be happy with him. And, and if you're Buffalo, you finally get away from the distraction of Jack Eichel, which I think people thought was going to be a good pick when they took him. In the draft a few years ago, he was going to be the face of that franchise, and he just never really could stay on the ice. And that's a big, big factor into why it just hasn't worked. But Buffalo finally gets out of that, can continue their rebuilding, and if you're Vegas, you hope to get Keiko back in the later portion of the year, and it leads to something special. Because Vegas wants to win the Stanley Cup. They've been in the Cup Final before. They want to get in there and win it this time. So coming up on Saturday, we will do Word Association Top 5 Games for NFL in Week 9. We'll recap Jets-Colts. We'll look ahead to Week 10 in college football. Top 5 games there. Hopefully we'll do a student section showdown. We'll see. Uh, We'll talk more about the Baxter Holmes ESPN.com story involving the Phoenix Suns. And we'll do a little bit more as well on the show. 
Want to mind, you can follow me on Twitter at Rickinator555. Follow us on Twitter at FP underscore coverage at Full Press Radio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Wherever it's your podcast, just search Kicking with Q or chances are you will find me. Remember, you can please leave a ring. I want to hear from you. Tell me what you like. If you don't like, you can email me, rickjkeeler at gmail.com. Remember to download the Full Press Coverage app on your iOS or Android device. It is free. Uh, so be sure to check that out. All of our articles, podcasts, live shows are there, like FPC Radio Live, Dylan and Raw Safe Sports. Uh, we have FPC NFL Sunday, which I'm on every Sunday, so be sure to check that out. A couple articles I had up on Barrett Sports Media this week. Uh, Jack and Nick Mullen talked with Dan Levitar about her decision to retire from ESPN. And Mike Tirico talked to Dave Pash about how he handles working with different analysts. So I enjoyed both those interviews uh, that were done on those podcasts, the Dave Pash podcast and South Beach Sessions with Dan Levitar had those um, interviews. So from all of us here at Full Press Coverage, thanks for kicking with me, Ricky Keeler, here on a Thursday. Enjoy Jets-Colts tonight. And we'll see you back here Saturday to look ahead to another eventful week in football on the first weekend of November. Until then, enjoy, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.